Hello and welcome to Team West Covina, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend podcast. I'm your host, Paisley, and today is Friday, September 21st, 2018. This is episode 8 of the podcast, and I'm hoping to get this episode out to you before the end of the month, since I know I'm going on vacation and will be gone for at least half the month in October, and since we had to wait for a while because of tech issues, I'd love to get another one out right away. Today we're discussing the episode, My First Thanksgiving with Josh, Season 1, Episode 6. It aired on November 16th, 2015. It was written by Renee Goubet and directed by Joanna Kearns. The IMBD synopsis says Paula keeps Rebecca under video surveillance when she's invited to Josh's family Thanksgiving. Meanwhile, Greg makes plans to quit his job and go back to school, but a family emergency intervenes. As always, there's a spoiler warning. I could discuss any events that have happened in the TV series so far. We see Greg at home base taking care of one of the drunken customers. He says, Lynn, I think that's enough. I can't have you passing out on the bleachers again since she had too much to drink. And now that we know Greg deals with alcoholism himself, it's kind of interesting to see him take care of drunken customers. We know he takes care of them at the bar as well as his dad, who's an alcoholic. And so Greg has actually been on both sides of this, and that's probably part of why he fears it so much. He sees how these other people are doing, and you know he doesn't really want to end up like them, and he's trying to help them along as much as he can, but uh, it's it's got to be hard to see it from both sides of the fence. We also see Valencia coming in and picking up Elena from softball, who I'm assuming is her sister, probably the 15-year-old who had her quinceanera mentioned in the first episode. We really don't hear much about Valencia's family at all so far, so um, I don't think I was even really aware of it until I I did the rewatch, but she has at least one sister. And Greg at home base, we see that he wants to vent, quit his job, and walk out of the bar, but Kevin, his boss, is super supportive of him going back to business school. And Greg, unlike most people, doesn't seem to want the support or positivity. Part of it is because he had worked this up in his head and he wanted to, you know, give a big speech and stalk out because he never gets to do this. He's finally going to take charge of his own life. But he also seems to feel emboldened by anger and defiance. That seems to give him the drive to do things. And maybe he also associates positive support with his mom as well. She's kind of cheerful and supportive of him. And, you know, sometimes he turns away from that. He, he likes his father's manner more and he identifies with it more. At the grocery store, Rebecca sees Mrs. Chan with a light halo around her head. Um, just like Josh in the second episode, they're both in grocery stores. They both have the halo. And we get the impression that she sees his family the same way as she sees him. Mrs. Chan, unlike Josh's friends, knows all about his and Rebecca's relationship from camp when they were 16. She says, you two had that adorable little romance and she views it as a positive thing. It's really interesting that Josh told his parents or at least his mom about it. Clearly he wanted to talk about it with someone even if he thought telling his friends was a bad idea. I'm assuming he didn't tell his friends because he thought it might get back to Valencia, uh, but he did apparently talk to his parents about it. When Rebecca agrees to come to the Chans for Thanksgiving, Lourdes says Josh will be thrilled, and she's right. She doesn't seem to see a problem in inviting an ex-girlfriend and a current girlfriend at the same time, or else she doesn't really consider Valencia's feelings because she doesn't like her. Throughout the episode and the show, it really does seem like Lourdes is hoping Josh will break up with Valencia and consider Rebecca instead. Rebecca sort of sees her as on her team, and I think she really is. Uh, She definitely likes Rebecca a lot more, and she isn't above you know, trying to orchestrate that for Josh. And I think from Rebecca's perspective, she really appreciates having a parent support her, especially in such an important endeavor. Lourdes probably thinks that she knows Josh really well and that he would be happier with Rebecca. And Paula says to Lourdes that her family's going to Paris for Thanksgiving as an excuse for why Rebecca can't come to her house. This even ties in with the Eiffel Tower decor she has by her work desk. 
We know that Paula likes acting out the fantasy of what she hasn't been able to have or experience yet. So she picks this fancy place that, you know, they're supposedly going on vacation. Uh, When she lets her imagination run wild, it usually goes to places like this. We learn visually in the episode that Greg's dad, Marco, used to own an Italian restaurant called Serrano's. The sign is hanging up in his house, and he has the newspaper article about it framed on the wall. The article says the restaurant is closing, and Marco blames the gentrification of the suburbs. Marco and his brother opened up the restaurant together and ran it for 20 years. When they returned from Italy visiting relatives, it sounds like they decided they wanted to honor their roots, especially their grandfather, and keep his memory alive by serving authentic Italian cuisine. So this, along with Marco's wife leaving him and having health problems, is part of what makes Marco bitter. It takes such a long time to build up your own business, and he was probably a staple of the community for decades, and now, like Rebecca, he too feels like he doesn't belong when he once did. I think that's the difference between them, is Rebecca feels like she never belonged and doesn't fit in, whereas Marco had worked to belong and run this restaurant and it changed so much for him and I think that you know that makes him kind of extra bitter because he knows what it was like to have that feeling and now he just kind of feels like he's off on his own and nobody cares except for his son. Rebecca in the kitchen in the next scene is learning Tagalog, a Filipino language. This is a little more evidence that the reason she knows Mandarin on her resume is because Josh was originally supposed to be Chinese. It's over the top, but it's also nice that she cares so much and tries so hard. She's cooking a Filipino dish, and she's not doing these things begrudgingly, but eagerly with interest and pleasure. Somebody doing it only to suck up and no other reason would probably do it begrudgingly if it wasn't organic for them. But the harder Rebecca tries, the further she has to fall. It's sort of like when she spent all that time getting dressed up during the Sexy Getting Ready song, She puts all that effort in, and then to find out that Josh isn't even at the party is even more frustrating because she she took all that time and put all that effort in. And I I think it's the same with Paula. Like, she put so much effort into this scheme for Rebecca to get Josh that she ends up feeling frustrated when it devolves and goes in a different direction. It's Paula's idea to use a video camera while Rebecca is at the Chan's. This is only partially so she can help her in real time. It's also a literal representation of how Paula wants to live vicariously through Rebecca. She watches everything play out on video like it's Outlander or one of her fictional romances. This rubs a lot of people the wrong way, understandably. You know, it's taking things beyond the line. But what it tells me is how much Paula feels like she's missing something in life. If she's willing to go to that extent, you know, she she really feels the need to live through other people because she's that unhappy with her own life. She could have just gotten text updates from Rebecca. They didn't have to go that far. Interestingly, though, Scott doesn't give Paula grief for watching something at the Thanksgiving table. He asks if it's her soap and remembers what the name of her soap opera is. It's really only at the end of the night when he finally gets frustrated and tells Paula she should stop watching and come hang out with the rest of them. So next we launch into the song, I Give Good Parent. We see the words smart, polite, and good hygiene written on the clothes, while Rebecca's simultaneously in a revealing outfit doing all these sexy dance moves. There's so much irony and hypocrisy in this song coming off as a parent's dream when there's actually manipulation and ulterior motives underneath. The parent's dream part masks her sexual and romantic desire for their son. They're such different ends. And the song is really brilliant. It's super funny. I do think Rebecca's intent is more genuine than the song makes it out to be, though. Yes, she wants this to help her end up with Josh, but she also genuinely likes Josh's family and cares what they think of her. She truly does want to belong amongst them, even if you take Josh out of the picture. It's the opposite of what she experienced from her parents. Josh's parents appreciate Rebecca, and they're impressed with her. Plus, they're really welcoming and nurturing. Lourdes is a bookworm and in a book club, so she has that in common with Rebecca. In the next scene, we see Greg's dad kind of raising his eyebrows and waving at the nurse or doctor who's caring for him in the hospital. Already a little bit of a sign of his lecherous personality that he won't leave the employees alone. They find out that the best treatment options aren't covered by their insurance, so Greg feels like he has to pay for it himself. 
just one more instance of Greg being the adult in the situation, and that's how Josh and Rebecca see him too. He's kind of got to step up and be more mature. It seems like Mar- once Marco's business closed, he stopped being able to completely support himself financially, and that's probably around the time that Greg stepped in. Greg's willing to swallow his pride and get his job back at home base for the sake of his father, though. And he's willing to spend all of his savings on the treatments for his dad, which for sure everyone wouldn't do. Um, It's a huge deal, and it probably took him a long time to save up all that money. We hear kind of a throwaway comment from Valencia at the Chan's house. She says, I've been starving since 1998. There's something really interesting about that comment, though, because if you do the math, and granted, they don't have the timeline entirely worked out, but... You know, regardless of whether this is supposed to be 2015 or 2016, we've kind of heard both, but it aired in 2015. Um, That puts Valencia at around 17 years old, 17 or 18. And it's probably around the time that Josh came back from camp. And granted, Valencia didn't know about Rebecca at the time, but Josh and her were on a break, technically, during that that summer. And you kind of wonder if Valencia was motivated to start, you know, quote-unquote, starving herself because she felt like she needed to step up and impress Josh to keep him. The timing was just really interesting on that. You know, it wasn't earlier high school. It was kind of like, you know, right after that summer. She may have felt instinctively that Josh's attentions were, you know, not always completely focused on her. And after being apart for a summer, she probably felt like she had to prove herself even more. So maybe it has nothing to do with the guy. Maybe it's just her own self-perception and, you know, she has an ideal weight that she desires to be. But a lot of the time it is tied into a relationship. And I, you know, I don't think the timing's a coincidence. We also see that Rebecca is literally in the Chan's family photo and Valencia isn't, so a clear indication of who does and doesn't belong. When Josh asks if she'll move in with him, Valencia says, I do. She too thought it would be a proposal, like a lot of the viewers probably did on first watch. It seems like it's leading up to that, and then it ends up being moving in together. And Valencia's been waiting for a commitment for so long, and they're adults, so I I think she expects it to go to marriage, and Josh kind of takes that in-between step. And I have noticed that a lot of people don't think of moving in together as the same level of commitment as marriage. Some people do. Some people think, okay, we're moving in together. We're going to stay together forever. And, and they do view it as the same level of commitment. But it's something you definitely want to clarify with your partner because a lot of people feel like they can just move in, see how it goes. If it doesn't work out, they move out after a couple of years and it's, it's not nearly the investment that a marriage would be for them. In the next scene, we see Greg bringing tacos to Rebecca's place, probably as a little ironic nod to their taco festival date. And Greg says to her that his dad's the only person who's been there for him his whole life. This makes it even sadder that Marco slept with Rebecca later because Greg sees his dad as, you know, that one person who he can count on and... He really betrayed him, not not just in, you know, needing financial help, but in this really emotional, personal way. Rebecca is the one who suggests night school to Greg. She kind of gets him on that path. And she starts plumping pillows behind him and says, no one likes a hot butt, which is what Greg said to his dad in the hospital. And you can see right on his face, Greg is really affected by the sign or synchronicity. This is one of those moments when we see one of the guys follow a sign He thinks, oh, that's what I said. Isn't that funny? Isn't that ironic? Where he sees that as a sign that they're similar and that they, you know, belong together. And it's all subconscious, but it's sort of something that makes him sit up and take notice. And then we see Paula is viewing all this through the hidden video camera and saying, not Greg, Josh. I worked so hard for nothing. So I think this is part of the reason she doesn't want Rebecca to end up with Greg. That was the question I asked in the last podcast episode. Even though Paula finds Greg sexy, she's put a lot of work into getting Rebecca and Josh together. And she feels like, you know, she's she's not being helpful or she's not needed if Rebecca just ends up with Greg on her own. And Paula seems to be having trouble adapting to the situation as it evolves. And she ships Rebecca and Josh, you know, she sees them like 
her Outlander characters or any of the couples that she enjoys in fiction, she is really rooting for them to get together. And so she kind of has this, you know, these moments of frustration like viewers would when they're watching a show. Even if the characters seem like they might get on, you know, she, she doesn't want Rebecca and Greg to be endgame. Then we see Rebecca in the tag of the episode. She's telling a story about being at Harvard and how she had sex with a junior visiting from the Brown Improv Troupe, and this led her to think, you have made another terrible decision. So we don't have like a ton of information on this, but we know from the Dream Ghosts episode that she's kind of had relations with different theater people, and that a lot of them didn't treat her well. It does seem like Rebecca hasn't really had a boyfriend other than Josh when she was 16, that she sort of just had encounters and she's never really gotten the commitment she was looking for. You know, I think she probably considered Robert a boyfriend, but obviously that situation was more complicated than that because he was married. You know, so she's never really fully gotten that level of commitment. Even Josh, it was just for such a temporary short period of time. And you can see why it's so frustrating for her and why it's so important to her that she does end up with Josh because every other guy has disappointed her, quite frankly. While Josh has as well, he's also, you know, the only person who was her boyfriend during that summer. Before we get to our next segments, uh, I just wanted to take a little break and remind you guys that you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash teamwestcovina if you're able to contribute even a little bit per month. It really does help the podcast stay hosted since that costs money every month to keep all the episodes up and available. And it also covers the cost of some of the tech equipment and really helps out a lot since I'm a one-person show right now. Also, if you're able to rate or review, it really helps other people find the podcast, whether you review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you listen to. It will bump the podcast up in search results and it it definitely helps people find it. I know when I go looking for a new podcast, I check reviews because, you know, sometimes if you're searching for something popular like Game of Thrones or there's a zillion podcasts, I mean, how do you decide? A lot of the time I'm scanning reviews and seeing what other people said and that will ultimately determine what I listen to. Thank you for anyone who's already done that. It's a huge help. Um, If you're not able to contribute to patreon reviewing the podcast is is just as helpful so thank you very much so moving on to the segments we're starting with who done it which is how many times rebecca initiates plans to get josh and how many times paula instigates in this episode paula gets rebecca invited to the chans for thanksgiving by way of josh's mom you know she even gets her to the right grocery store and she really sets that up well and It wouldn't have happened if she hadn't done that. Rebecca, for her part, learns Tagalog and makes a Filipino dish to impress Josh's parents, playing up her Harvard smarts and Ravenclaw inclinations. So in this episode, Paula instigated one time, Rebecca instigated one time. Pretty even. And full total so far, Rebecca's instigated nine times and Paula's done it six. So while Rebecca's still ahead, you can see Paula definitely has an influence on this. For a friend, you know, she's almost matching the actual person involved, so. Our Ring of Fire segment was definitely a little challenging this time. I don't know if I found an outright fire reference in this episode. There's a couple little comments here and there that could be it, but it wasn't super obvious, and it it wasn't, you know, it's clever or creative as some of the past ones. We do have Marco asking the doctor to go out and have a cigarette with him, So if candles count as a fire reference, maybe cigarettes do too, but not super exciting. If anybody else found one, definitely let me know and I'll report it on the podcast. Sometimes you have to watch it a couple times to really pull it out. Our suicide watch segment, I really didn't see anything that, you know, indicated the lead up to Rebecca's suicide attempt. It is mentioned with the Leaving Las Vegas reference, but that had more to do with Greg and I didn't really see anything in this episode that had to do with anything in that area. But Boo's Clues, there's a whole bunch in this episode. You really get to see that bubbling up in Greg. Marco starts asking about that crazy girl from the taco festival. And Greg says, why do I tell you anything? Oh, right, I was drunk. So you can see he's a little bit more loose-lipped when he's in that state. 
And Greg, after his really stressful day, shows up at Rebecca's and says, you promised me a drink. I got tired of waiting. And he brought his own booze. He brought tequila. So you can see that after a a stressful day, he's using alcohol to cope. Um, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people might do that every once in a while. But for Greg, it, it probably happens a lot more. And Greg also says, why does Netflix always want me to watch Leaving Las Vegas? What are they trying to tell me? And this is pretty big, actually. I, I don't think I've seen this movie. If I did, it was a long time ago, and I don't remember anything about it. But it's about a suicidal alcoholic in Los Angeles who was fired from his job, and he decides to go to Las Vegas and, quote, drink himself to death. So it kind of indicates that Greg is a lot more unhappy than he communicates to people and that he's really having a rough time and it's also an indication that his drinking problem is a lot more serious than anybody knows at this point there's also a lot of netflix references in the episode uh greg does the netflix quit inspired by old movies or tv shows on netflix in our nailed it segment we take a look at the nail polish code that rachel has confirmed they implement for rebecca's character and it usually gives an indication of how she's feeling. There was no nail polish, a cup of boba, white feather, home base, cooking in her kitchen. Uh, Most of the episode, she's just trying to work towards connecting with Josh again. But then she pulls out pale pink nail polish when she goes to the Chan's house on Thanksgiving to impress his parents. And this kind of goes along with her pearls, cardigan, vintage style dress, that whole appearance that she's trying to give off as far as being pure and a good girl and smart and classy and all of that stuff. So then we move on to the music notes segment. There are two songs in this episode. The first one is I Give Good Parent. And one of the lines in this song is got your current chick looking like Greg Fokker. So not only is this a reference from Meet the Parents, the movie, but the entire movie is parodied in this episode. I haven't seen it, although probably most of you have. I tend to watch TV shows a lot more than I watch movies. But in the movie, Greg Fokker is a middle-class Jewish guy, and his girlfriend's white, upper-class Protestant parents take a dislike to him. And Crazy Ex-Girlfriend obviously has the Jewish ties, and they're referencing cultural differences in the episode. Greg Fokker uses a malfunctioning toilet and floods the backyard with sewage. In Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Rebecca has a poop attack in the Chan's bathroom. So, some parallels there. The girlfriend's dad in the movie placed hidden cameras throughout the house to spy on Greg Fokker, just like Rebecca's spy cam on her dress. And then at the end of the movie, the boyfriend finally gets to propose, similar to Josh asking Valencia to move in with him. Though I think for a moment there, viewers thought he was going to propose on first watch. There are also some other interesting references to Meet the Fockers in different episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, so the movie may have been an influencer inspiration. Greg Fokker is given a lie detector test, and Paula later gives Scott one. Greg Fokker sets fire to the wedding altar, and Rebecca sets her old boyfriend items on fire, as well as Robert's house. And some sort of misunderstanding causes the dad to think that Greg Fokker does drugs or uses marijuana, whereas... Rebecca and Valencia mistakenly think that Anna, Josh's later girlfriend, is a drug dealer. Greg Fokker also loses the family cat, and Rebecca and Valencia accidentally run over Anna's cat. I haven't seen the movie, so there may be even more similarities, but, you know, when I read synopsis, I thought, boy, there are an awful lot of them, you know, maybe more than just coincidence. On the Spotify commentaries, Rachel Bloom says the idea for I Give Good Parent was based off her mother-in-law liking her so much in real life. And originally there was going to be a bridge to the song in Tagalog, the Filipino language. That ended up getting cut. Zach Sherwin specializes in comedic rap and he worked really heavily on the rap part with them. There's also an explicit version of I Give Good Parent available on YouTube. And the second song is What'll It Be? The Townies Lament the world telling you that you belong in a place that doesn't fit you. Of course, it's a parody of Piano Man. That was pretty obvious straight off the bat. And it started out as This Town is Going to Swallow Me Whole. It was written by Adam Schlesinger, and it was Rachel's idea to parody Piano Man, but then Adam ended up creating this song. I don't have that much to say about it, other than it's just a great song. You know, it really stands out. And I think a lot of us can relate, at least at some point in our lives. Um, Many of us grew up in kind of 
you know, regular old towns that maybe weren't too exciting. And I remember feeling stuck when I was younger because I ended up, I got a scholarship to college, which is wonderful, but it, you know, it forced me to go to my hometown college. So I couldn't really break out and, and have adventures and explore another part of the country, but you, you don't turn that down, you know, to have that much financial support. So I ended up staying in my hometown for college. And then I wanted to get out after that, but my bachelor's degree wasn't enough to get me the kind of job that would allow me to live in an area like that. And it seemed like all the jobs that would required a master's, which I had never intended on doing, but it ended up being necessary just to get a a job that would give me financial security there. So then I ended up staying to do my master's degree because it was affordable in my town so that took even longer, and it really wasn't until I finished with the master's that I was able to move to a new place in the country. Definitely worth it, but it was a long haul, and sometimes if you have stuff going on there and you want to be in the city, but you're stuck in your hometown, it's a lot of going back and forth and not feeling like you're fully part of things, and so you can definitely see why Greg would be frustrated. The place he wants to be is all the way across the country. So there are two main themes in this episode, belonging and families. Starting with families, no one's family is perfect, no matter whose you look at. It's often, though not always, a lifelong relationship. And it's inevitable that over that long period of time, there's going to be some sort of serious disagreements and differences of opinion. Rebecca's family's shortcomings are obvious. She idealizes Josh's family and they welcome her. But Lourdes in particular doesn't accept Valencia, which upsets Josh. He wants his mom to respect his choices and not undermine them, even if she thinks he's making a mistake. So even though Rebecca sees the chance as perfect, Josh doesn't. I mean, Josh loves his mom, but he really doesn't like the way she's treating his girlfriend. And he doesn't like that two members of his family are, are not getting along, essentially. And Greg sees his father as the person who's always been there for him, though we later learn that he pushed his mom away and chose to side with his dad. And this makes Greg feel indebted and motivates him to do all that he can to keep Marco alive. Because if his dad dies, Greg won't be able to count on anyone else being there for him. I think it's common to scramble for a partner or a long-term relationship when a parent dies or becomes chronically ill, especially if you don't have siblings or children or other people in your life to help you out. But Greg's father also has lots of failings, and Marco recognizes this. Uh, he encourages Greg to do what's best for himself rather than getting stuck like, like Marco did. He really doesn't want Greg to end up like him. Marco thinks that Greg might have to lose him if he's ever going to live his dreams and find a place that he belongs. But there's obviously a lot of guilt that comes with that choice and potential for Greg to have to deal with grieving his dad. I know some people have speculated that that may come up in fourth season as a potential reason for for Greg to return to West Covina, if only temporarily. Greg probably feels like there's no good option here. Ironically, though, his mom's family probably could have helped him pay for school, but he doesn't view them as an option that's even on the table. So he's limiting himself in some ways by not accepting their help or, you know, having too much pride to, to go there. But Part of the reason that might be is, is not just pride, but Greg's probably afraid he'll fail if he tries and actually goes to Emory. It's kind of early, I could if I wanted to vibes. We also get a look at Paula's family in this episode. She doesn't feel connected or close to her extended family, especially not to her racist relatives. And I think it's pretty common for people to feel like this about their extended family, but in the process, she's disconnecting from her immediate family too. You can see Brendan sleeping at the table, and Tommy doesn't look like he's paying attention. My headcanon is that he's probably playing a video game under the table. (laughs) And Scott is actually the one who's trying to hold them all together in this scene. But they're all really disconnected from each other, and it's tough because Paula can change her actions, but she can't really help how she feels. And it's common for marriages or long-term relationships to go through something like that, even if the partners decide they truly want to stay together how do you know when it's right to stay and when you should leave? And the other thing is you can share more interest with someone at certain times of life. And, you know, then your interest may diverge at other times. People 
change and grow all the time. It's not always going to be like this perfect match. My mom and I have some interest in common that we absolutely didn't when I was in high school. And it's actually her who changed. So that's sort of something that you're just signing up for if you're going to be in like a long-term relationship. And then there's also the option of alternative family. And this is what Rebecca's tried to do with the Chans. She's written off her blood relations as a lost cause. And she desires to find a hand-picked chosen family and place to belong instead. It's just that when the choice is given to you, Rather than getting a random genetic lottery selection, it can be harder to make the right decision than it looks. People you'd be absolutely over the moon about having as an alt family might disappoint you too, the same as blood relations can. And it's hard to see that coming. You know, sometimes they might be really great for you know a decade and then they betray you or disappoint you or leave. And so either way, it's there's no perfect solution to this. You're always taking a chance. Possibly if, if you're handpicking them, you're getting people that are more like you automatically, whereas it's semi-randomized when it comes to genetics. But I think either way, you, you can end up losing people or just not feeling connected to them. So then moving on to our second theme, the topic of belonging, this comes up over and over again in this episode. Josh says to Rebecca at the very beginning, the most important thing is that you'll be with family where you belong. And we can see Rebecca thinking, you know, she hasn't belonged with her parents and family for a very long time. Josh feels really connected to his family, so he doesn't even question how other people might feel about it and that not everybody has that super tight loving relationship. Rebecca just wishes she belonged somewhere. This is what she thinks a cup of boba. And in the office, she tells Paula, I ate my twin in the womb. I metabolized its body parts for my own use. It seems super random to put in, but it's also an indication that Rebecca feels she was the cause of not having family who make her feel like she belongs. Maybe her twin could have been that for her. In reality, though, they could have fought, they could have been competitive with each other for parents' approval. It's still a crapshoot, and it wouldn't have necessarily solved anything. But they could have ended up best friends, you just never know. I'm kind of curious if the twin will ever come back again, because it is kind of a, a random past detail to include. Paula says to Rebecca, do you think Angelina went into Mr. and Mrs. Smith with that attitude? And basically goes on to say that their children wouldn't exist if she hadn't. And then she says to Rebecca, who do you think belongs next to him? Meaning Josh. Belongs next to him. In Paula's mind, you know, Valencia and Josh just don't belong together. They're not a good fit they're not good for each other. And Rebecca belongs with Josh in Paula's mind, and she's supporting that all the way. In the end, it doesn't come down to you know, circumstances or who got there first to, to Paula. She just wants the person who belongs with him to be there. And while that can be somewhat subjective, sometimes there are really concrete reasons for it. And in her opinion, getting Rebecca and Josh together is the right thing to do. Rebecca says, after meeting Lourdes, I'm actually going to a real Thanksgiving with a real family. That's definitely part of the belonging issue and part of what she wants, part of what attracts her to Josh. It wasn't what drove the attraction by any means, as they met at camp away from their parents. But as she got to know Josh's family and heard about them from him, Rebecca begins to see that as another checked box, another positive in terms of having Josh as a boyfriend. She really does love his family. Meanwhile, Marco feels like he no longer belongs when he once did, which is what drove him to drink. And Greg drinks for similar reasons. He doesn't think he belongs in West Covina, but circumstances make it hard for him to extricate himself. And Greg actually has an idea of where he belongs, Emory, in business school, but can't act on it. Some people don't even know where they belong, or where they believe they belong doesn't exist anymore. So sometimes people can't even proactively solve the belonging issue because it's out of their hands. We see Valencia, who doesn't feel like she belongs amongst Josh's family. And she tells Rebecca, you don't belong here. This is not your family. She's very direct about it. And of course, you know, part of it is the territorial thing. But Rebecca says to Mrs. Chan, you've made me feel like I truly belong. And Lourdes says, oh, of course you do. And this is huge for Rebecca. This is massive validation, and it makes her feel so much better. 
Josh says at the end of the episode, we're reminded of the place we truly belong, and I belong with Valencia. We're not entirely sure what got him to this conclusion, but the interesting thing about it is that Lourdes very likely pushed him to this conclusion because the way she was treating Valencia made Valencia appear as the victim, and Josh was probably empathetic to that and wanted to counteract that in any way that he could. And when he feels sorry for her, it kind of leads him to stand up for her and declare that they are family and they belong together. And, you know, she's legit because I'm going to be living with her. It's ironic that, you know, sometimes Lourdes or Rebecca, they're trying to be proactive and tip the scales one way, but sometimes their actions can backfire. Like you don't know what the consequences are going to end up being. And in part, I think Rebecca's behavior and, and particularly his mom's behavior probably got him to ask Valencia to move in in the first place. So I actually have some research on the theme of um, humans belonging, how humans react to belonging or not belonging, to kind of examine how the topic applies in the real world and what kind of psychological research we have on it so far. There's an article by Kendra Cherry from 2018 saying the need to belong involves more than simply being acquainted with other people. It is instead centered on gaining acceptance, attention, and support from members of the group, as well as providing the same attention to other members. I'd say that's really true. It's, you know, like the adage that they say, you can be lonely or feel alone in the middle of a crowd. You know, you can be in a casual group of friends and still not get that sense of belonging. And a lot of the time it's not their fault. It's just that you don't have that full and complete equal relationship where somebody gets you on all levels and is supportive of you in all areas of your life. And you can still feel lonely even if you've got friends, even if you go out and do things. The Penn State website cited a variety of studies on this topic. They say when we experience interpersonal strife, we often contemplate walking away rather than sticking it out. However, finding a relationship with similar depth is not an easy task. This explains why so many individuals are apt to hold on to destructive relationships. The fact that some people display an unwillingness to leave an abusive partner conveys the strength and power of our need to belong. I think this definitely... um, goes back to a lot of people in the show where it's so unlikely for them to find somebody that they belong with that they will stay even in a less than ideal situation you can definitely see it in rebecca she doesn't feel like she belongs anywhere so fighting to belong with josh is gonna be a central theme of importance in her life because he's the closest she's ever felt to belonging in an origins of belonging research article by harriet over she says that fulfilling the need to belong involves satisfying two different criteria and satisfying either the criteria alone is not sufficient to fulfill the need. Positive interactions outside of long-lasting relationships will not be completely satisfying and nor will long-term relationships that lack regular contact. So you really have to have both positive interactions on a regular basis with someone that you have a long-term relationship or friendship with it really has to be all of that it can't just be you know one thing or another for that need for belonging to be fulfilled importantly it is conceptualized as a need rather than simply a desire the article says this means the failure to satisfy it ought to be marked by serious distress and long-term negative consequences so this is like an integral thing for humans and if we see rebecca acting out or really struggling, like there's a good reason for it. In a CNN article from 2012, it says research shows that even a single instance of exclusion can undermine well-being, IQ test performance, and self-control. Self-control is kind of where I was thinking of Rebecca because we know she lacks self-control at times, and this might be part of the reason why. I mean, her borderline probably plays into it as well, but it also may be this feeling of exclusion and rejection. In a Business Insider article written by Charlie Floyd, it says the main reason that groups exist in evolutionary terms is that they protect us from other humans who are trying to kill us. And I think that still extends to modern day reality, maybe not literally all the time, but a lot of the time people feel protected in groups. And if they have to face a situation or a person they're not super comfortable with, they're going to come in with a posse, whether you know, it's a gang or whether it's at a social event, it's definitely something that humans still do. 
And from a Daily Mail article, they are talking about something that I had actually never heard before, a historical research. They're talking about from the earliest days of Europeans in America, settlers of both sexes ran away to join Indian tribes. This wasn't just a few people. It was hundreds and hundreds. And the settlers actually made like a, a rule or a law that they couldn't do this and that there was going to be punishments for it. But people still ran off and joined the Indian tribes. And it hardly ever happened the other way. Indians didn't want to join white society. And so they, they kind of argue that the reason why this happened is because the Indian tribes provided the sense of community that you also see in primates like monkeys and primitive human societies and all the original beings that humans came from. The Indian tribes were less hierarchical, they were classless, they were more equal overall, and they were pretty nomadic, so they moved around and they didn't have as much personal property, and it, that was less of an issue. So it's interesting that there are these historical examples of people going to extremes to get that sense of belonging, even if it meant giving up the safeties and the resources that the settlers had. An article called The Empirical Case for the Need to Belong talks about how rejected participants are more motivated to retaliate against the person who rejected them than to seek connection with others. So they kind of anticipated that somebody who'd been rejected would you know, go out again and try to find a new person to connect to or belong with, but that's not always the case. That's not necessarily what really happens. The person, a lot of the time, if they're rejected, will literally try to get revenge in, in some way. And I think we definitely see that over and over, especially in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Rebecca famously tries to get revenge. She could have tried to just move on with Nathaniel, but we see in early season three, she tells him, no, move along, you know, don't stop by my house. I'm busy trying to get revenge on Josh, essentially. And that becomes more important at first. They talk about how social exclusion can increase aggressive behavior to the point that People who are rejected, they might even behave aggressively towards neutral and innocent parties as well as like large groups of people. And there's this link between rejection and mass violence, which of course is most obviously demonstrated in the mass shootings and things that we've seen in our country. But it can happen in less extreme ways as well. It just leads to this kind of under the surface feeling of irritability and grouchiness where you're just going to kind of lash out and react to the people around you even if they have nothing to do with it. Also from the CNN article they talk about an experiment that uh, Stanford professor Gregory Walton was doing and he has a belonging intervention set up at a college and apparently it's it helps control stress by allowing people to put a narrative around their traumatic experiences, even rewrite them in the context of a larger framework. And so a lot of the belonging intervention has to do with storytelling. The researchers provide subjects with statistics, quotes, and stories from upperclassmen about their experiences being college freshmen and how they struggled at first but eventually got through it. And then they ask the current college freshmen to use that information to write about their own difficulties in hopes that they can pass them on to like future incoming college freshmen. And the first year college students relate to them even though they've never met them because they, they know how hard it is personally to, to go through your first year of college. And this narrative, this storytelling, and this connecting to people through their own personal narrative can really give them a sense of belonging and a feeling of not being alone, that people are really understanding and getting where they're coming from and addressing it and not just ignoring it. And it's funny because I was doing the research on this because the theme of belonging came up so heavily in, in the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend episode, but I actually did relate to the, you know, putting a narrative around traumatic experiences thing because I tend to do that in Copian's Corner, talking about some of the things that happened, how it parallels the show. And it seems like it shouldn't necessarily help or why would this help? But there does seem to be a correlation that people feel driven to tell their stories or get it out in some fashion. And, you know, this is a lot of what talk therapy is about. Humans are really connected to storytelling and narrative, and it helps them process their own experiences in a way that makes them seem more purposeful. If they have a beginning, middle, and end, if they're gaining insights from them, it can actually help a lot. 
which is kind of strange. And the last bit of research I found, Brene Brown, who's given a TED talk on the topic of belonging and wrote a book on it, says the greatest barrier to belonging is fitting in. As it turns out, men and women who have the deepest sense of true belonging are people who also have the courage to stand alone when called to do that. They're willing to maintain their integrity and risk disconnection in order to stand up for what they believe in. Brown says that when we fit in as opposed to belong, we acclimate to the situation instead of standing for our authentic self. I think that's probably the most important thing that I learned in the belonging research. And it's something Rebecca really struggles with. When she is herself, sometimes that pushes people away. She has trouble finding people who accept her for who she truly is. But she does find them eventually. I mean, it does take time, but she's got friends at this point in the series who are there for her unconditionally, even when she's trying to push them away. And that's pretty huge. That's something that could really give her a sense of belonging in a way that just fitting in with Josh's group is not going to. Fitting in is more like the appearance of belonging. And, you know, while it works socially, it's not necessarily going to give you that full sense of being accepted and of having somebody truly get you. But it's also hard to put yourself out there because sometimes you do and then people judge you or can't relate or aren't interested in being your friend if they think you're too different. So you can see why humans tend to do the fitting in thing more than finding true belonging. So I have the poll question from last episode, favorite supporting character in Josh and I are good people. We've got 0% Tim, 0% Madison, 17% said Mrs. Hernandez, and 83% said Father Bra. So he went by a landslide. That's probably who I would have voted for as well. He is, he is awesome. He is so funny. Then we had the podcast question from episode 7 of Team West Covina. Why do you think Paula finds Greg sexy yet simultaneously is very against Rebecca ever dating him? And we had a couple people chime in on Twitter. Uh, Cynthia, who runs the Bunch at Lunch podcast, said because Paula sees her dad in Greg, they're both bitter alcoholics, and so she's not necessarily going to root for Rebecca to end up with somebody like that, even if he's got an appealing physical appearance. And Karen on Twitter said that Paula's all for wanting Rebecca to get the one who got away because she never got Jeff. And since she's living vicariously through Rebecca, she's going to keep rooting for that to see what ends up happening and what would it be like if Paula and Jeff had actually played it all the way out. So next we've got our poll question from this episode, which you'll be able to find on Twitter, on Team Wascovina social media. Where do you think Rebecca will find that sense of belonging by the end of the series? The choices are friends alone, Nathaniel and friends, friends and a new partner, or herself. And there are other choices I would love to put in here, but they only let me put four options. So feel free to comment if one of these doesn't fit you. Um, I think you can also say she won't. You know, maybe she won't find that sense of belonging. You could probably say Greg, since we have some speculation on, on what might happen with that in season four. There's a lot of choices that people might say that I can't fit in the poll, but give it a shot. Let me know what you think. And then the podcast question for this episode is, what was your experience like when meeting the parents of a significant other? Did you give good or bad parent, and how did it turn out? For those of you with children, did their significant others give good or bad parent? You can kind of get the experience from both sides here, because I'm sure some of our, our listeners are parents. You can reach out to the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All of it is under Team Wascovina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. We're going to move on to Acopian's Corner, which is where we talk about more personal stories and how those experiences parallel some of the things that happen in the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend episode we talked about today. I know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and in many cases I, I do like hearing you know what's going on with the, the hosts or how their experiences shape their perspective on whatever the podcast is discussing. It can be nice to see how it really does play out in real life and how people really react to things and what it's like to deal with the same issues in real life when there's no script or narrative plan for how things are going to play out. If you don't plan to join us for a Copian's Corner, thanks for listening. 
So this time in a Copian's Corner, I actually want to get a little more into some of my stories and how all of this started. In the episode, we see Josh and Valencia making plans to move in together and Rebecca having a front row seat. And that's kind of what I'm going to parallel in the journal entry excerpt, since I too had to watch Cheetah and Catnip move in together. They were preparing to move into an apartment and at one point I actually had to help them shop. (laughs) So I realized Cheetah was starting to act differently around me and text me more. It was right around the time when they were really doubling down in the apartment, Um, but this was before I knew how I felt about it. So this is a little excerpt from my journal from a number of years ago in the beginning of this whole triangle situation. I was feeling so alone after three plans with three separate groups of people fell through that I did something unusual and texted Catnip randomly to see if she wanted to come over after dinner. She and Cheetah had plans to shop for apartment stuff after work as they were temporarily living with her parents but planned to get their own place this year. Catnip invited me to join them at stores near the mall. Catnip wants everything perfect for her apartment. A certain shade of green, a particular style or pattern. She found black and green dinner plates on a website, but they weren't being sold online anymore, so Cheetah went to customer service and got them to search all the stores in the area. That part reminded me of Valencia and, and Josh and the table and all those things because Catnip was also really you know particular about decor and what she wanted her house to look like. At one store, Cheetah fell in love with this microfiber bath mat and told me to buy it so he could still use it. I'll just take all my showers at your house from now on, he said. Sometimes he makes a joke like this and then doesn't let it go. He brought it up two other times in the same night. The second time it was, you'll come home and I'll be showering in your bathroom. And then you can be promoted to creepy neighbor number one, I quipped, as we'd been talking about a creepy neighbor of mine earlier that evening. The third time he said he wanted to come over regularly to visit my dog. I'll come over to shower and play with your dog. I'll show up with nothing but a chew toy and a towel over my shoulder, Cheetah teased. I was texting a friend to see how a pivotal night for her was going and ended up looking down at my phone for five minutes or so. In the middle of receiving a bunch of texts from her, I got one that said in all caps, Hello, how is texting going? From Cheetah. You didn't have to yell, I said. I wasn't yelling. It was in all caps, I pointed out. I was emphasizing, Cheetah retorted. I imitated how his message would sound if he emphasized every word and we cracked up laughing. Cheetah said that he and Catnip will be out looking at clothes in the mall, and he'll be like, that's something Paisley would wear. He thinks he could actually pick out my clothes for me. Then they both came over to my house, and I showed Cheetah how to play keep away with my dog, with one person sitting on the floor at either end of the living room, and my dog running between to get the ball. The two of us struck up a lively game of this for a while. I inwardly raised an eyebrow when Cheetah later whipped the ball through my legs and right up my skirt. I had to stand up and turn around to retrieve the ball when it went past me, and while I was facing the other direction, Cheetah took the second ball and smacked me below the belt with it. He's definitely acting weird. So that was sort of the prelude when I didn't really know what was going on, and I didn't particularly have feelings yet, but then shortly after that I I wrote a big longer journal entry, which is when I realized and acknowledged that we actually seem to be attracted to each other and that feelings are starting to develop as we were already good friends by that point and we'd known each other a number of years. So this next journal goes something like this. Catnip and her ex, who's gay now, were curled up on the love seat with a blanket over their legs and another friend was at one end of the couch with Cheetah in the middle and one spot on the end left for me. I was surprised that Cheetah and Catnip weren't sitting together and that the only spot left was next to him. Cheetah was wrapped up in a blanket, and when I sat down next to him, he shared the blanket, placing half of it over me from the neck down. When the others went into the kitchen to get pizza, he said he didn't want to get up. I updated my friends on how a guy friend of mine, who was a little bit like Trent in terms of obvious behavior, called at midnight to sing me happy birthday. Cheetah laughed, giving me advice on what to say and what not to say. If you're good friends with him and you start telling him your secrets, he'll think you're letting him in and feel all honored, Cheetah continued. Catnip said for ages she told her ex it would never happen, although it did for a little while, but she quickly found out that it wouldn't work. Apparently she also spent months and months telling Cheetah it wouldn't happen either and that she wasn't interested. It wasn't until the guy she really liked screwed her over that she felt vulnerable and began to lean on his attention. 
Cheetah has even said that he's worried she wants to move out to escape her parents more than she specifically wants to be with him. That was part of the draw when she moved in with her ex, too. He said when they were dating, but he was still living in another state, he was willing to travel to her, but she wasn't willing to travel to him. They lived multiple hours apart, and he ended up making more of the sacrifice. Cheetah told us that he'd never gotten to do traditional dates at all. Well, we should go on dates, Catnip said. Nah, now we're living together and in a comfortable place, so it doesn't count as dates, he countered. I told them how I'd never gone to the movies one-on-one -on -one with a guy like you do in high school. And Cheetah went, aw. I brought up 500 Days of Summer, the movie, and Cheetah was all like, I love that movie. I love that at the end of the movie, the guy met a new girl and her name was Autumn. Cheetah gushed. It amused me that someone so scientific and agnostic was completely won over by a synchronicity. Even I thought the ending was a little cliché, but I liked that they showed the main character moving on, and it was clear he'd get a chance to date someone who was actually into him. Cheetah complained about some of Catnip's habits that he really only picked up on once he started living with her and her parents, most of which involved not doing chores or cleaning up after herself. She said she'd get better when the two of them were living on their own, but no one really believed her. Two of our friends had left by that point, including Catnip's ex, and our remaining friend ended up launching into her own complicated relationship story, which Catnip hadn't heard yet, so the two of them became pretty engrossed in their conversation on the other couch. Meanwhile, Cheetah and I put our feet on the second couch, and our knees against our chests sticking upward, and then slouched down so our knees formed a wall. We talked about sports, which the others weren't interested in, and he said he wanted to take me to a baseball game. Catnip would never go, he pointed out. After a little banter, he abruptly changed the topic and tone. Catnip told me what you guys talked about at Starbucks, and I want to have a serious talk with you about religion, Cheetah said, uncharacteristically solemn. Once I found out that you didn't want to tell me your eclectic practices because you thought I would judge you, I felt really bad and kept thinking about it, and it bothered me. I started judging myself for judging. Catnip told me that you thought I'd judge because of the story I told in the car. That girl in high school was only doing it to get attention. It was different. Anyway, the point is it wasn't about religion or spirituality. There's only two things I can't stand. One is the Christians that think being Christian makes them superior. The other is the hardcore atheists that are positive there's nothing out there and think everybody else is stupid for thinking otherwise. None of us knows for sure, and they don't have a right to be that arrogant, Cheetah mused. Then he said, my best friend is Christian and we have long talks about it. I like that people have faith in something that makes their lives better. I think it's a hard thing to do. My best friend makes a point of living by certain rules because of his faith, even if it's tough. I had told Catnip about my sort of eclectic spiritual practices that you know weren't exactly mainstream. And I told Cheetah why I always consider myself part agnostic because we're constantly learning more truths every day and have to readjust our worldview on a regular basis. I explained about my experiences with philosophy class and how America seems to view seeking truth as the super positive and noble thing, but sometimes it doesn't do any good at all. Philosophy could tear down all these arguments for gods or religion as illogical, but such truths did nothing for me. I'm glad I studied philosophy because I use critical thinking and validity in how to make a sound argument, but it also made me realize that seeking only firmly established truths would leave out much that is essential. There's so much we don't yet know or haven't found out. Cheetah brought up paradox all in his own, which was synchronistic in itself because that's been a buzzword of mine lately. He said there's a particular mathematical paradox about infinity and how it can't be divided, but if you took a step towards infinity, then you were dividing it by one one hundred thousandth or whatever, and and if you took another step, you were dividing it by 1 by 99,999th. He swears he came up with this idea on his own before he'd ever heard it anywhere and was surprised when he found it was an actual theory. I talked about how the further in I go, the more I'm beginning to see that life is full of paradoxes and that they happily coexist no matter how illogical they seem. I said you can see it in both the tiny building blocks of physics as well as spirituality and stuff that happens in everyday life. Paradox used to bother me, but now it doesn't. It seems to be part of reality. You're like one of four people I've ever talked to about this kind of stuff, Cheetah said. 
I can't explain the mathematical paradox as well as he did, but he's super smart about math, science, psychology, electrical things, and how to put anything together, whether it's furniture, a cable hookup, or pieces of information about a friend that lead to a logical conclusion. He spoke about how his SAT score was crazy high, but he wasn't motivated to apply for college and in fact put it off until July when he had only a month before it started. He applied to one college and got in, so he was satisfied. Cheetah had never been motivated to work in a traditional academic environment. I said that not every environment will fit each person, and we all learn in different ways. I'm perfectly happy doing a crappy office job somewhere, really, he confided. It doesn't bother me at all. He said Catnip gets on his case about this, even though that's what she's doing. But I thought it was interesting and said that he was lucky because lots of people are unhappy in their jobs. Cheetah and I had never talked about science, philosophy, or spirituality before. It brought us to a way deeper level than any of our previous conversations. We got all amped up, excited, and connected while we were talking. We were sitting side by side, but making direct eye contact behind our little wall. I felt like a change occurred between us, but who knows if it was totally one-sided. We talked about how perceptive Cheetah is, and he went, Catnip's not, but I am. You're too perceptive, so perceptive it scares me being someone with secrets, I confessed, as I wondered if he could see the change in feelings across my face. We talked about how Cheetah adapts to his environment and might adjust his behavior around different people. Well, then, what do you like when you're alone, I posed. He grinned. I'm weird when I'm alone. Even Catnip doesn't see it or know what I'm like. I sing really loudly when I'm by myself, usually Disney songs. I laughed. At first glance, he didn't seem to type. But then again, he also likes stuffed animals. Cheetah joked that he put tiny cameras all over my apartment so he can learn my secrets. Just talk towards the left bookshelf, he advised. I might not talk loud, it's all in the journals, I told him. Well, then I'll magnify the lens by your computer. He kept teasing and continued to be intensely curious about everything in my life. He talked about how Catnip sees everything in black and white, and he sees the gray areas. I commented that I do as well, especially after philosophy. He said he and Catnip fight a lot about, I can't remember, but things like Cheetah moving here, Cheetah getting a job, Cheetah getting a better job, etc. Once he reaches one goal, she sets another one for him. Catnip's been open about how she gave him an ultimatum and said she'd break up with him if he didn't move to her state. We got back on all the do's and don'ts he'd advised me on in regards to my Trent-like guy, and I said, with all the rules and how to approach things and what to say or not say, regardless if you don't like someone or do like someone, it's equally confusing to communicate or even understand what's happening. I know, how does anybody get together? It's so random, Cheetah agreed. He talked about his social network and how it started with this one guy in third grade, whom he didn't even like, that got him into a video game, and just about everyone he knows can all be traced from that singular incident. I think about this kind of thing a lot, he said. It's all down to fate, but it's also random. I mean, the statistical likelihood of meeting those exact people is ridiculously improbable, like tossing a die with a thousand faces in the air. Each result is so unlikely, but the die has to land on something. That's so true, I added, like the lottery. You have practically no chance at all, but technically someone still has to win. Sometimes I want to diagram my life on a big board and see my social network all laid out, Cheetah said. I see that I had to go through certain people or situations, even if they were less than ideal, because they ended up being the things that led me to something better. Deep down, I'm highly romantic. For me, it's always timing that ultimately shoots me in the foot, I said candidly, but truthfully. I'm always behind, I'm always the second person to get there, and by then it's too late and I've missed my chance. I can't remember the context, but Cheetah asked if he was in my novel yet. You're not in the novel, but you're in the journals, I smiled. The journals will be published after you die, and journals are still interesting, he contended. More interesting, I laughed. We talked about how he doesn't drink alcohol, and I asked why. Okay, well, this isn't the only reason, but I'm afraid of how I'll act, he admitted. I teased him that he didn't need alcohol because sometimes he acts drunk already. Exactly, I feel like that too, he exclaimed. I shudder to think what I'd say or do if I had a few drinks. We laughed. Cheetah isn't curious and has never been interested in drinking or smoking, which is something I appreciate about him. He said his regular guy friends gave him crap about it at first and wanted to convince him to try alcohol. And Katniss will probably always be in that phase where she wants to see what I'm like when I'm drunk and pushes me to drink, Cheetah added. 
He looked at me. But you understand you don't pressure me to try it. He hates how catnip acts out or passes out when she drinks too much at social events. Cheetah made me feel drunk around him. Seriously, I had zero alcohol and got the same feeling. Even little things made me laugh. I felt like I was in a dream fog and my inhibitions totally fell away to the point that I shared more than I normally would and was much more talkative than usual. It's so rare for me to have this feeling towards anyone that I was quite caught off guard by the sudden wave and intensity of it. All of a sudden, someone looked at the clock for the first time and exclaimed that it was four in the morning. (laughs) We honestly had no idea. It shocked me that it was that late. While I was talking to Cheetah, it was like time stopped, like we were suspended in a dream where the real world couldn't touch us. I'm guessing Cheetah and I talked by ourselves for at least two hours, maybe more, but I was in the same room with the others. We all got up and went to the front entryway. Catnip and I hugged goodbye, and then behind her, Cheetah held out his arms to me. As we hugged goodnight, he exclaimed, Secrets! in a greedy voice and hugged me tightly. I couldn't help thinking of what he'd said about boys like my Trent, boys like himself, that if you share your secrets with them, they'll be super honored and think you're reaching an intimate level. I put my coat on and Cheetah went, Don't you have a coat like that in purple? I told him that was my spring jacket. Why does Cheetah know all my clothes? This is not the first time it's come up. This month is the first time I noticed a change of intensity in my own feelings towards my guy friend. But I'm totally dead-ended here. My hands are tied in this situation. It's not up to me to do anything. He's the one in an exclusive relationship. I got home at 5 a.m., and only five hours later, Cheetah texted me, in all caps. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.